0: I should have added, noted there, it's, this is from Psalm 104, this is one of those tunes I think you, you could find um, uh, easy enough to sing in family worship, uh, uh, and so uh, perhaps some of you don't have a Trinity hymnal, um, we've always made those available to members of our congregation uh, to take home and to be able to use them for family worship. Um, if we start knowing hymnals missing, uh, noticing hymnals missing in the pews, we'll, we'll replace them, um, so uh yes it's a it's a beautiful tune um, Your singing of it was God honoring and glorifying well this morning, our sermon passage is it's just two two verses uh, Philippians chapter four verses eight and nine. Uh, you may be surprised uh, at the end of the sermon how much can be said about two verses i don't know perhaps uh, you'll be disappointed that more wasn 't said it 's hard to say um, but Philippians chapter four verses eight and nine is our sermon passage. We'll go there in a moment, but first we'll read uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So it's a 2 and 2 morning uh, this morning, 2 from Romans 12 uh, and 2 from Philippians 4. So let's turn in uh, God's Word to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go to Romans 4, verses 8 and 9. And as always, brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is God's Word. If, if you want to hear God speaking to you, He is He speaks to you through His Word. Not my voice. Don't make any mistake about that. I am not speaking with the voice of the Lord. But God speaks to you through His Word. And so you would do very well to give your full attention to God's Word as it is being read. And you're welcomed, of course, to read along with uh, with me as I read it aloud. Read it silently in your heads as I read it aloud. (laughs) Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And now turning to Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Our gracious God, your word is truth. Sanctify us with the truth. Oh Lord, we thank you that we have an abundance of riches in your word. We thank you that your word is all of these things that the Apostle Paul has commanded us to think on, to consider. It is true. It is honorable. It is pure. It is just. It is lovely. It is commendable. It is excellent. It is praiseworthy. It is all of these things, dear Lord. It is the epitome of what the Apostle Paul calls us to think upon. And so we pray, dear Lord, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we think on these things and as we put into practice what what the Apostle Paul uh, taught, what he... With the Philippians and we have learned, what we have heard, what we have seen from him. We pray, dear Lord, that you would guide us as your word is proclaimed now. We pray that you would help us to hear. We pray that you would be with the one who preaches. Well, Lord, we are all sinners here. We are all in need of your assistance, of the assistance that your spirit provides to those who desire to hear your voice. And so we pray, Lord, that you would guide us as your word is proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you'll notice that this passage begins with the word finally. Verse 9, finally. Um, This is a short letter. Uh, We could have read this letter uh, in less than 20 minutes one Sunday morning if we had so chosen. We have have read longer passages of Scripture in previous sermon series than the book of Philippians uh, is. We could have done it, and so it's somewhat uh, interesting for Paul to use the word finally here as he approaches the end of this book, and yet he does. And and so in many ways he is is saying, I'm drawing this letter to a conclusion, but this word finally, it also means that what he's about to say is very important, that he wants the brothers and the sisters there in the church at Philippi to, to listen, to pay attention, to give ear to what he's about to say. Now I'm going to I'm going to introduce this sermon a little bit differently, and you may be wondering for a few moments what I'm doing. Just bear with me. I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, But we're going to go uh, somewhat um, in a a different direction here today. We're going to start out by talking about the theory of evolution. I'm not going to try to explain it to you. Uh, I don't believe in it. I don't believe the Bible uh, uh, permits us to believe in the theory of evolution. I think the Bible is very clear about the origins of of all creatures, and, and especially mankind. But... One of the negative effects that the widespread belief in evolution that our society has is that it has quickened the pace, at least in my estimation, my observation, it's quickened the pace of devolution. If evolution is the theory that simple organisms over billions of years mutate into more uh, complex organisms resulting in a diversification of species, then devolution is evolution working backwards. And so sometimes I've been known to say when someone is challenging me on evolution, I don't believe in evolution, I believe in devolution. I don't think we're getting better. I don't think we're moving toward a higher form of life. I think, in fact, if you look at the history of mankind, we're going downhill. Or, if you will, it's the understanding that though our first parents in the Garden of Eden were created very good without moral spot or blemish, with superior mental and physical abilities, humankind has degenerated into lesser beings Than were Adam and Eve. Now, according to what the Bible says, and if you believe the Bible, uh, then then this is what it says human beings are the crown of God's creation. And like anything else He created during the six days of creation, He created mankind in His own image, He declared mankind to be very good. Whereas the rest of creation was, was declared to be good. Not that that's a, a mere thing, but it was certainly uh, mere in comparison to his declaration of the, the very goodness of mankind. Now the theory of evolution has accelerated our devolution because it teaches us that we are no different than any animal. That we are animals ourselves. And if we are nothing more than animals... Any kind of behavior that is refined or that seeks to conform to some kind of moral or ethical code is merely pretense. We're just curious apes, after all. No need to get uppity. No need to think of yourself as holier than me. Now, of course, opportunists will look to the animals and they see behavior that they would like to be engaging in, that they would like to mimic... And look, they say, most animals don't have monogamous relationships, so neither should human beings. Since we're just slightly more advanced animals, we're really no better than them. We've just been developing, uh, uh, perhaps a little longer than they have. And so, the argument, we have to admit, it has a logic to it. We're animals. Other animals behave in ways that go against the moral values that have been imposed upon us. I'll behave like the animals do. Now by this point, some of you are asking what all this has to do with the passage that is before us. And that's a valid question. And I'm I'm hoping that your question is going to be uh, answered right now. If you were to boil down what Paul is saying in these two verses, it would be that our thinking affects our behavior. But really that's what Paul has been saying all along through this letter to the Philippians. Uh, Our thinking affects our behavior. There are at least a couple of problems with looking to animals as inspiration for how humans ought to behave. First, animals aren't capable of higher level thinking the way that humans are. Well, this isn't to say that, especially with certain animals, that they aren't capable of thinking. I think any of us who own, owns a pet, for instance, a dog or a cat, or if you've, if you've uh, been at all interested in the studies of dolphins and, and other animals, that they are capable of thought. It's not what we're saying at all. But they're, they're far more instinctual than humans are. M- much of their actions are, are based on instinct rather than, than having contemplated the merits of one course of action versus the other. Second, as higher life forms, human beings, as higher life forms, animals ought to be taking their cues from us and not the other way around. We shouldn't be looking uh, to the animals uh, for cues as to how we ought to behave. Even as an evolutionist, I think you would have to see the logic in that. And so the fact is that some of those who want to behave like animals simply want to engage in behavior that is base and instinctual. They want to be free of any restri- restriction that the morality police have placed on them. But in our passage, Paul is essentially saying that because our thinking has consequences for our behavior, that we are to think upon things that will lead to virtuous behavior. Paul told them in verse 7 that the peace of God would guard their, mind, their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And now he's zeroing in on the inner activity of their hearts and minds. And so he writes in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Now, the biblical understanding of human nature is that what is inside a person, what they think, what they believe, has a direct effect on what they do, on behavior. Your thoughts, your beliefs will have an impact on your actions. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter. 15 verses 18 and 19, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now we should note that there isn't a disconnect between the mind and the heart in biblical teaching the way that there is today. Today, we sometimes see where there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge. We've got to get that head knowledge down to the heart. That's what's going to affect the behavior. The Bible doesn't have a concept of of that split, of that break. What's in the mind, what's in the heart of a person causes that person to do what he does. Now, the context for what Jesus... Told his disciples, is that the Pharisees were offended that Jesus had said earlier that it isn't what goes into a person that defiles the person. It's not what you eat. The Pharisees were notorious for all of the restrictions that they had placed on their diet. They're very careful about eating certain things and not eating other things, beyond what the Old Testament dietary laws required. And so when Jesus says it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth the Pharisees were scandalized. It sounded as if Jesus was, was jettisoning, as he was throwing out the dietary laws. And, and in reality, that was what was going to happen after his death. Those dietary restrictions that, that even, uh, that were contained in the Old Testament would be tossed out. And so you read in Acts 10 that, that whatever is there on that, that, that white sheet that comes down from heaven, these things that Peter has never touched in his life, never eaten an unclean thing. And he's told to eat. that These things are good. But what Jesus is saying is that defilement doesn't come from eating unclean foods. It comes from the things that issue forth from the heart and pass through the mouth on their way out. Now, on the surface, it may seem like Jesus and Paul contradict one another. We may know uh, sort of, you know, empirically, the Bible does not contradict one another. You may read this. Wait a minute. Jesus is talking about what's coming out, the things that are in the heart that defile. Paul seems to be saying that, that things that could come into the heart might defile a person. Paul says, the Philippians, they are to think about, consider, dwell upon those things that are true, honorable, what they've learned and received from him, as he says in verse 9. And of course, the Pharisees were challenging Jesus on the shade that he was throwing at their food laws. They were far more concerned about what, he, what, the, what they could and couldn't eat than whether or not they obeyed God and served their neighbors. And so they, they would say, well, I can't help my father and mother. My inheritance has been pledged to the temple. The natural tendency of our hearts, because of the sinful behavior or sinful nature that is resident in humankind, is to pour forth into all kinds of sinful behavior. What's in the nature of a person, what's in their heart, is going to spill out into behavior. But that kind of sinful thinking can be increased by the kinds of things we think about, the things we consider. We can't affect our behavior. We can, we can stir up those vestiges of our sinful nature, even as Christians, by what we dwell upon. And so the most extreme form of this would include pornography, which studies have shown can rewire your brain. Studies have shown that there is, there is an addiction that can take place with regard to pornography. But there are plenty of other things available to us through those smart devices that are in our pockets or on our laps that are less extreme than that, but still do damage to us. This is somewhat of an aside, but I lately have been thinking about social media and thinking about the number of times that really terrible things have come about through the use of social media. I I wanna be one who says, well, it's just a tool. And it's just helpful. But there's a part of me that says Facebook is the devil. (laughs) And we need to stay away from it. Because I've seen some of the negative effects. Affairs have happened because people have been uh, made aware of one another through Facebook. This has happened so many times. I just wonder. I don't know. I'm not saying toss out your smartphones or or cancel your Facebook uh, accounts. I am saying you need to be careful. Because these things are affecting us in ways that we don't seem to be able to be equipped for right now. What Paul is saying, think about these extreme things and perhaps less extreme things that affect our thinking, our behavior in a negative way. Conversely, if we think about things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, pure, lovely, and commendable, these will have a positive influence on our minds and ultimately on our behavior. And so Paul is calling on the Philippians here to think in a manner that is consistent not with their their earthly, temporary citizenship, but with their heavenly citizenship. He told them back in chapter 2, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the mind of Christ. Have this mind. He tells them over and over again that their citizenship is in heaven, that they need to think in terms of of heavenly citizens. In the words of one commentator, he urges them to be proactive in focusing their attention on those things that reflect the goodness of the gospel. And So if you were, if you were to sort of uh, take those, those six characteristics plus the two uh, summary characteristics, the, 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 the truth, uh, the, the honorable things, the, the pure things, uh, uh, the, the, the commendable things, the just things, and there's one I'm forgetting. If you take those, you summarize them in what is excellent and what is praiseworthy and then you summarize them even, even more, it's those things that reflect the goodness of the gospel those are the things you're to reflect upon those are the things you're to dwell upon now in in verse 8 he's not prescribing types of behavior yet He's, he's not telling the the philippians and and us how we're to behave he's instead showing us what ought to be our focus our motive the basis for our behavior What is the impetus of our behavior? It is those things that we we dwell upon, that we fixate upon. He's going to tell the Philippians and us in verse 9 how we ought to behave, but right now he's telling us how to think. And we haven't actually talked about the word translated think, but this, this word has an accounting background. It can mean calculate, reckon. And so it refers to careful consideration. Now, perhaps many of you, when you're doing tax preparation, you, you may use tax preparation software now. You, you, you may have an accountant, if, and that's great if you do, but, but I can remember being a young man, my first job where I had to pay taxes and filling out the, the 1040EZ form, which was relatively easy, but I can remember my grandfather who ran a, a small business, his, his dairy farm, and every year... He didn't use an accountant. He pulled out the card table. He had every uh, every receipt, uh, every statement of income when he would sell, you know, when he would sell the, the, the hundreds of gallons of milk uh, and the and the the money that he would. He had all of that, and he would do the taxes himself. And it was it was what I would imagine a, a, you know on a very small scale what an accountant, a CPA, in a firm would do on a large scale. And it it required careful consideration, careful reckoning. He had to be extremely careful because this was the IRS he was dealing with here. They could come after him if he did it wrong. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which we read earlier, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's appeal in Philippians 4.8 is reminiscent of Romans 12.2. And Philippians 4.8 expands upon what Paul appeals, Paul's appeal in Romans 12.2. It helps us to understand how our minds are to be transformed. And so there's sort of an unanswered question in one sense with what Paul says in Romans 12.2. How, how is my mind to be transformed? How is it to be renewed? Well, Paul in a sense answers it here in Philippians 4.8. How are we to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? By dwelling upon that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And the command that Paul gives them to think about these things, these six qualities, or perhaps these, these ideals, that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, it's summarized by what he says there in the second half of verse 8, uh, by excellence and praiseworthiness. These things are excellent, excellent. They are the, 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 the excellences that we ought to strive for. They are praiseworthy things. It means that, that other things ought to be excluded from our thinking. What are the things that you dwell on? What are the things that keep you up at night or trouble you during the day? But certainly things that you're worried about. If your teenage son has just recently acquired his driver's license, you've got plenty of reason to be anxious. But we also dwell on negative things that people have done to us. How easy it is for us to, to remember an unkind word, a, a, a word that, that someone else might have said not even thinking that it would be hurtful. And we might dwell upon that word, that, that interaction, for, for months or perhaps even years. We, we dwell on it, we turn it over. It's like a, it's like a, a grain of sand inside an or- oyster, but it does not turn into a pearl, it turns into something that is, is not good and lovely and pure we dwell on the latest political controversy I finally after a few years of cable television early in our marriage had, had to, we had to give it up I was a political news junkie I went through all of the, all of the news stations and this was in the early days when, when Fox News was still trying to, uh, to get, uh, get out there on, the, on the, cable, uh, the cable plans and it was too much and for, for 15 glorious years, we, we didn't have cable. Uh, now we have it again. But I, I, don't even, I don't like watching that stuff anymore. It doesn't do good things to me. It may do good things for you. It doesn't do good things to me. We carefully consider all the ways that we could have sarcastically responded to the person who said something less than kind to us. How many times have you, have you done that? You walk away from somewhat of a confrontation and an hour later you think of all the zingers you could have you could have leveled at that person praise the lord you couldn't think of them in the heat of the moment or you would have something else to go back to and try to be reconciled over those are the things that we naturally tend to dwell upon we don't tend to dwell upon this list of of qualities this list of, of ideals this list of perhaps virtue would be a way to to put it Paul is commanding us to so fill our minds with what is good, with the truth of God's word, with what, that which is honorable or majestic, with that which is right or just or good, with that which is pure or worthy of our awe, with that which is lovely or pleasing, with that which is commendable or worthy of a good report, that we don't have time to dwell on the negative things in this life. That doesn't mean that we're unaffected by negative things. It doesn't mean that we we don't necessarily consider those things. We're not going to dwell on them. We're not going to turn them over in our minds, chewing on them like a cow chews on its cud. That's not what we're going to dwell on. That's what Paul is commanding us to to stay away from, to, to dwell on, to consider, to contemplate, to focus our attention on these things that are good and lovely and true. We should cultivate a sense of the goodness of the Lord so that we're not enticed by worldly or earthbound thinking. And at the end of verse 8, when Paul says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, as we've already said, he's most likely giving a summary of those six virtues that he listed earlier. Anything that is excellent and praiseworthy, any, in other words, what is true, what is honorable, what is lovely, what is just, what is pure, etc., Now some folks, and perhaps you are among them, when you read this verse, you've read this verse in the past, perhaps in your own personal study of God's Word. The first thing you think of when you read verse 8 is is art, is music, is is craftsmanship, uh, the the beauty of nature. You read this and you think of those things, and and those things aren't excluded from what Paul is talking about here, by no means, but this is the first thing that Paul thinks about. This is the first thing that he's talking about, about when he mentions this list of good things. For Paul, what would first come to mind is anything that would earn the praise of God. Anything on here, here on earth that would, that, would, that would earn his commendation. And of course, we may not know all of those things. God doesn't regularly contemplate on uh, the artwork that you might f- find in, in the Dallas Museum of Art. Uh, we don't see that necessarily but but we do have in the Bible numerous places where God declares things that are good God declares other things that are sinful or evil and so we have a pretty good idea based on what is in Scripture but Paul is he's talking about the human endeavors the human behaviors that God looks down upon and he finds commendable it's what God considers in human behavior to be of moral excellence that Paul is commanding us to deeply consider the kinds of behavior and activity that God commends in Scripture. So for instance, in Psalm 101, verses 1 to3, it exemplifies this kind of thinking, "I will sing of the steadfast love, I'm sorry, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now, this does not mean that art and music and natural beauty, that that craftsmanship, that architecture, that that these things are somehow worthless or base or or meaningless. Not at all. They just don't seem to be what Paul had had primarily in mind. They weren't necessarily the first things that he is commending when he speaks of these things. But certainly by God's common grace, there are all kinds of human endeavors and behaviors, including art and music, but also scientific endeavors, the exploration of all of God's creation, including the ocean, the mountains, the, the space. All of these things are worthy and, and commendable endeavors. What Paul has said in verse 8 is very much in the abstract, however. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a concrete list of, of of things that we ought to think about. Go and study the Mona Lisa. We don't don't get that from Paul. So in verse 9, Paul gives us the practical application. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Think on these things, he says in verse 8. And then he says, you've seen me doing these things. You've heard me teach these things. You practice these things. You do these things. He's asking the Philippians to call to mind his teaching on his previous visits and his letters. And so he gives them four wells of experience to draw from. The things that they've learned, the things that they've received, the things that they've heard, the things that they've seen. And so one commentator, I think, hopefully sort of divides this into two uh, two couplets. The things that they've learned and received. Sort of go together nicely. And the things that they've heard and seen. And he says that you, you've you've experienced these things in your relationship with me. You know me. I was with you. The Philippians saw when Paul, at least they were aware of, of when Paul was thrown into prison. The Philippian jailer saw it. He was there. They've heard the stories. They know the things that Paul talked about. They know that when Paul and Silas were in jail and they were singing hymns to the Lord, that an earthquake took place, the, the, the door to the cell flew open, or all of the cells flew open. the jailer's convinced they're going to escape, that when he gets there, they're all gone, and then they're all sitting there peacefully. They haven't gone anywhere. So Paul said, look to me. Again, we've said this before. We've encountered this kind of language in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We know that Paul's not setting himself up as this primary example. Paul uh, says elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians, uh, he says, uh, 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 imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what he's calling us to do. And so, it's not just what Paul has taught them, although he's taught them much. He's also... Uh, uh, told, he tells them that, that they are uh, to put into practice the things that they have received from him. He uses the word translated received in 1 Corinthians 11:23, 23 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. And then he goes on to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul seems to have in mind here the things that are received and passed along from one person to the next, one generation to the next. These are what he wants them to put into practice. He also wants them to put into practice what they have heard from him. Now, this would seem to overlap with what they've learned and what they've received, but Paul may be thinking in terms of two pairs, as we've already said. He wants them to, to practice what they've learned and received from him, but they also want, uh, he also wants them to practice, put into practice what they have heard and seen from him. What they have heard from Paul would include his teaching and those things that he has received, such as the Lord's Supper. But also those things that he's passed along to them include those countless stories that Paul would have told the Philippians about what the Lord has done. How the Lord delivered him time and again. They had seen how Paul was reluctant to burden them. How he wasn't looking to sponge off of them. And yet how he was willing to receive their support when they wanted to to support his missionary work. What they have learned and received from him, from him, what they have heard and seen in him, these are to be put into practice by them. And so this is somewhat of a foreign concept to us, but Paul is offering himself as an example of someone whose life, whose behavior, whose practice has been profoundly shaped by deeply considering that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. He's not thinking of himself more highly than he ought. He's not bragging about himself. But he understands that his life has been shaped by that kind of thinking. And so he he sort of puts himself forth as, as this concrete example of one whose life exemplifies this kind of contemplation. And the behavior that comes as a result of that contemplation. He has thought upon what is excellent and praiseworthy. And these things have affected how he behaves. What we think about, what we engage our minds with, it will affect what we do. God created us with minds and bodies, and these two things are intimately connected. What we think about affects how we act. What we do with our bodies affects how we think. It has been demonstrated that that poor posture, that, that the way that you carry yourself in your body can affect your mindset. People who are suffering from depression, one of the things that they can actually do is, is to stand up straight, to get some exercise. Our minds and our bodies are connected. That doesn't mean that all forms of depression are going to be miraculously corrected by good posture and exercise, but it, but it helps. If we are only ever dwelling upon what is negative, on the darker aspects of this life, we will begin to lose sight of what is good and right and holy. We will forget the good things that the Lord has done for us. We'll forget His steadfast love for us. These things will be diminished for us. Ultimately, though not exclusively, Paul here is calling upon us to dwell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as he tells the Philippians to practice what they have learned, received, heard, and seen in Him, he's actually pointing them to Jesus Christ. If they're to be an imitator of him, then they're to be an imitator of Christ because he was an imitator of Christ. And then Paul ends this passage with a promise. Practice these things, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, he promised the peace uh, of God would be like a garrison, it would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Now he is saying that not only the peace of God will be with them, but the God of peace will be with them. He gives them that promise. He's given them commands in our passage. He's told them to think about certain things and to practice certain things. And now he gives them the promise, the hope. The God of peace will be with them. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then the God of peace is with you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you. Whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not an animal. You're not a beast of the field or a bird of the air. You're not a dog. And so you ought not to be looking to their behavior as inspiration for your own. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer enslaved to your sinful nature. You have been set free. Sin is not your master. And so that behavior that you may wish to revert to, that you may be tempted to to sort of go back to, the desire to devolve... It may be there, but God has given you, by the power of His Holy Spirit, as a gift for faith in Jesus Christ, He has given you the power to resist that temptation. To resist the slide. To resist the desire to behave like beasts. Paul is simply calling upon you. He is commanding you to dwell upon things To behave in ways that are consistent with the fact that you have been redeemed from God's everlasting punishment in hell. Again, in short, he's calling upon you to think about things the way that a citizen of heaven would think about things. To think on things as a citizen of heaven. You are not an animal. You have been created in the image of God. But what is more, by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed... You're no longer a slave to the sinful nature. You're not bound by sin. You can do what is right. You have been set free. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. That is good news. And Paul is saying that in response to that good news, in response to the fact that you have been granted eternal citizenship in heaven. You ought to think like and act like you're a citizen of heaven. That, brothers and sisters, is God's word for you today. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that we would be reminded of who we are. That we are creatures who have been Made in your image. That we are unlike any other creature that you made. But also, dear Lord, that we are sinners who have been redeemed. We've been set free. And so, dear Lord, we are new creation. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we're not bound any longer by our sin nature. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would cause us to to consider, to dwell upon, to think upon all of those things which Paul has listed, that which is true, that which is holy, that which is lovely, that which is good, that which is right. Lord, we pray that you would help us to dwell upon these things. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to look to you and to consider that which you find to be commendable. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here in this fallen world. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us that Jesus Christ came and lived and died in order for us to have that citizenship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.